Hi, everybody. Carla here. Welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. You know, I was thinking earlier about some other way that I might greet you here at Carla Reads the Classics, but the only thing that seems to occur to me is to say hi, everybody. Not very original, not very cute, but it's all I can really think of to say. As much as I love literature, my own imagination right now seems really, really stunted, but I will sincerely say that I Thank you and appreciate it every time you listen here at Carla Reads the Classics. And if you have questions, comments, or if you'd like to make a suggestion, please write to me at CarlaReadsTheClassics at gmail.com. And now, without further delay, I give you Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, Book the Third, Chapter 5. And this one is called The Wood Sawyer. one year and three months. During all that time, Lucy was never sure from hour to hour, but that the guillotine would strike off her husband's head next day. Every day through the stony streets, the tumbrils now jolted heavily with the condemned. Lovely girls, bright women, brown-haired, black-haired, and gray. Youths, stalwart men and old, gentle-born and peasant-born, all red wine for la guillotine all daily brought into light from the dark cellars of the loathsome prisons and carried to her through the streets to slake her devouring thirst. Liberty, equality, fraternity, or death. The last, much the easiest to bestow, O guillotine. If the suddenness of her calamity and the whirling wheels of the time had stunned the doctor's daughter into awaiting the result in idle despair, it would but have been with her as it was with many. But from the hour when she had taken the white head to her fresh young bosom in the garret of St. Of Antoine, she had been true to her duties. She was truest to them in the season of trial, as all the quietly loyal and good will always be. As soon as they were established in their new residence and her father had entered on the routine of his avocations, she arranged the little household as exactly as if her husband had been there. Everything had its appointed place and its appointed time. Little Lucy, she taught as regularly as if they had all been united in their English home. The slight devices with which she cheated herself into the show of a belief that they would soon be reunited, the little preparations for his speedy return, the setting aside of his chair and his books, these and the solemn prayer at night for one dear prisoner especially, among the many unhappy souls in prison and the shadow of death, were almost the only outspoken reliefs of her heavy mind. She did not greatly alter in appearance. The plain dark dress, akin to mourning dresses, which she and her child wore, were as neat and as well attended to as the brighter clothes of happy days. She lost her color, and the old and intent expression was a constant, not an occasional thing. Otherwise, she remained very pretty and calmly. Sometimes, at night, on kissing her father, she would burst into grief she had she would burst into the grief that she had repressed all day, and would say that her sole reliance under heaven was on him. He would resolutely answer, "Nothing can happen to him without my knowledge, and I know that I can save him, Lucy." They had not made the round of their changed life many weeks when her father said to her on coming home one evening, "My dear." There is an upper window in the prison to which Charles can sometimes gain access at three in the afternoon. When he can get to it, 
which depends on many uncertainties and incidents. He might see you in the street, he thinks, if you stood in a certain place that I can show you. But you will not be able to see him, my poor child, and even if you could, it would be unsafe for you to make a sign of recognition. Oh, show me the place, my father, and I will go there every day. From that time and all weathers, she waited there two hours. As the clock struck two, she was there, and at four she turned resignedly away. When it was not too wet or inclement for her child to be with her, they went together. At other times she was alone, but she never missed a single day. It was dark, and dirt. It was a dark and dirty corner of a small winding street. The hovel of a cutter of wood into lengths for burning was the only house at that end. All else was wall. On the third day of her being there, he noticed her. Good day, citizeness. Good day, citizen. This mode of address was now prescribed by decree. It had been established voluntarily some time ago among the more thorough patriots, but was now law for everybody. Walking here again, citizeness. You see me, citizen. The wood sawyer, who was a little man with the redundancy of gesture, he had once been a mender of roads, cast a glance at the prison, pointed at the prison, and putting his ten fingers before his face to represent bars, peeped through them jocosely. But it's not my business, said he, and went on sawing his wood. Next day he was looking out for her and accosted her the moment she appeared. What? Walking here again, citizeness? Yes, citizen. Ah, a child, too. Your mother, is it not, my little citizeness? Do I say yes, mamma? whispered little Lucy, drawing close to her. Yes, dearest. Yes, citizen. Ah, but it is not my business. My work is my business. See, my saw. I call it my little guillotine. La, 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 and off his head comes. The billet fell as he spoke, and he threw it into a basket. I call myself the Samson of the firewood guillotine. See here again. Lu-lu-lu-lu-lu, and off her head comes. Now a child. Tickle-tickle-pickle-pickle, and off its head comes. All the family. Lucy shuddered as he threw two more billets into his basket, but it was impossible to be there while the wood sawyer was at work and not be in his sight. Thenceforth, to secure his goodwill, she always spoke to him first and often gave him drink money, which he readily received. He was an inquisitive fellow, and sometimes when she had quite forgotten him in the gazing at the prison roof and grates, and in lifting her heart up to her husband, she would come to herself and find him looking at her, with his knee on his bench and his saw stopped in its work. But it's not my business, he would generally say at those times, and would briskly fall to his sawing again. In all weathers, in the snow and frost of winter, in the bitter winds of spring and in the hot sunshine of summer, in the rains of autumn, and again in the snow and frost of winter, Lucy passed two hours of every day at this place, and every day on leaving it she kissed the prison wall. Her husband saw her, so she learned from her father. It might be once and five or six times, it might be twice or thrice running, it might be not for a week or a fortnight together. It was enough that he could and did see her when the chances served, and on that possibility she would have waited out the day seven days a week. These occupations brought her round to the December month, wherein her father walked among the terrors with a steady head. 
On a lightly snowing afternoon, she arrived at the usual corner. It was a day of some wild rejoicing and a festival. She had seen the houses as she came along decorated with little pikes and with little red caps stuck upon them, also with tricolored ribbons, also with the standard inscription, tricolored letters were the favorite, Republic One and Indivisible, Liberty, Equality, Fraternity, or Death. The miserable shop of the wood sawyer was so small that its whole surface furnished every indifferent space for this legend. He had got somebody to scrawl it up for him, however, who had seized, who had squeezed death with most inappropriate difficulty. On his housetop, he displayed pike and cap as a good citizen must, and in a window, he had stationed his saw inscribed as his little saint guillotine, for the great sharp female was by that time popularly canonized. His shop was shut, and he was not there, which was a relief to Lucy, and left her quite alone. But he was not far off, for presently she heard a troubled movement and a shouting coming along, which filled her with fear. A moment afterwards, and a throng of people came pouring round the corner by the prison wall, in the midst of whom was the wood sawyer hand in hand with the vengeance. There could not be fewer than five hundred people, and they were dancing like five thousand demons. There was no other music than their own singing. They danced to the popular revolution song, keeping a ferocious time that was like a gnashing of teeth in unison. Men and women danced together, women danced together, men danced together as Hazard brought them together. At first, they were mere they were a mere storm of coarse red caps and coarse woolen rags, but as they filled the place and stopped to dance about, Lucy, some ghastly apparition from a dance figure gone raving mad, arose among them. They advanced, retreated, struck at one another's hands, clutched at one another's heads, spun around alone, caught one another, and spun round in pairs until many of them dropped. While those were down, the rest linked hand in hand, and all spun round together. Then the ring broke, and in a separate and in separate rings of two and four they turned and turned until they all stopped at once, began again, struck, clutched, and tore, and then reversed the spin, and all spun round another way. Suddenly they stopped again, paused, struck, out the time afresh, formed into lines the width of the public way, and with their heads low down and their hands high up, swooped, screaming off. No fight could have been half so terrible as this dance. It was so emphatically a fallen sport. Uh, something, once innocent, delivered over to all devilry, a healthy pastime changed into a means of angering the blood, bewildering the senses, and stealing the heart. Such grace as was visible in it made it the uglier, showing how warped and perverted all things good by nature were become. The maidenly bosom bared to this, the pretty, almost child's head thus distracted, the delicate foot mincing in the slough of blood and dirt, were types of the disjointed time. This was the Carmagnoli, as it passed, leaving Lucy frightened and bewildered in the doorway of the wood sawyer's house, the feathery snow fell as quietly and lay as white and soft as if it had never been. Oh, my father, for he stood before her when she lifted up the eyes. She had momentarily darkened with her hand. Such a cruel, bad sight. I know, my dear, I know. I have seen it many times. Don't be frightened. Not one of them would harm you. 
I am not frightened for myself, Father, but when I think of my husband and the mercies of these people, we will set him above their mercies very soon. I left him climbing to the window, and I came to tell you, there is no one here to see. You may kiss your hand towards that highest shelving roof. I do so, Father, and I send my and I send him my soul with it. You cannot see him, my poor dear. No, Father, said Lucy, yearning and weeping as she kissed her hand. No. A footstep in the snow. Madame Defarge, I salute you, citizeness, from the doctor. I salute you, citizen. This in passing, nothing more. Madame Defarge gone like a shadow over the white road. Give me your arm, my love. Pass from here with an air of cheerfulness and courage for his sake. That was well done. They had left the spot. It shall not be in vain. Charles is summoned for tomorrow. For tomorrow. There is no time to lose. I am well prepared, but there are precautions to be taken that could not be taken until he was actually summoned before the tribunal. He has not received the notice yet, but I know that he will presently be summoned for tomorrow and removed to the concierge. I have timely information. You are not afraid? She could scarcely answer. I, I trust in you. Do so implicitly. Your suspense is nearly ended, my darling. He shall be restored to you within a few hours. I have encompassed him with, the very, with every protection. I must see Laurie. He stopped. There was a heavy lumbering of wheels within hearing. They both knew too well what it meant. One, two, three. Three tumbrils faring away with their dread loads over the hushing snow. I must see Lori, the doctor repeated, turning her another way. The staunch old gentleman was still in his trust, had never left it. He and his books were in frequent requisition as to property confiscated and made national. What he could save for the owners he saved. No better man living to hold fast by what Telson's had in keeping and to hold his peace. A murky red and yellow sky and a rising mist from the Seine denoted the approach of darkness. It was almost dark when they arrived at the bank. The stately residence of the Monsignor was altogether blighted and deserted. Above a heap of dust and ashes in the court ran the letters, National Property, Republic One and Indivisible, Liberty, Equality, Fraternity, or Death. Who could, be, who could that be with Mr. Lorry, the owner of the riding coat upon the chair, who must not be seen? From whom, newly arrived, did he come out, agitated and surprised, to take his favorite in his arms? To whom did he appear to repeat her faltering words, when, raising his voice and turning his head towards the door of the room from which he had issued, he said, Removed to the concierge, and summoned for tomorrow. That'll do it for Chapter 5 of Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, Book 3. Thank you so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. I hope you enjoyed the reading. Thank you so much for joining me. And again, if you have questions, comments, or if you'd like to make a suggestion, please write to me at Carla Reads the Classics at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>